We're going to continue our summer series now with Dr. Becker. If you missed last week, like I did, you can listen to the last week on our line, on media, our media page online, and catch up to that. But I think you're going to still gain a lot from today's message. I was really uh, blown away by last service. I shared last service with everyone the first time I met Dr. Becker. I was at a uh, Vanguard conference, and I had no idea who he was. I, I, I flew in from Seattle when I used to live there, and I met him at a, a, a lake house with six or eight people, and I got to spend three days with him just hearing him speak right next to me on a couch. It was pretty fantastic. He won't be talking like that this morning. He definitely adjusts to a crowd, but he just has such a heart for this house. He's a confidant to Dr. Hill, Pastor Bobby. He's a close friend, and we love having him here. He has such a heart for the Word of God and for God's people. So would you put your hands together for Dr. Becker? Thank you, Pastor Todd. Good morning. Just wanted to check if it's still morning. You know, it's a, it's a Sunday after all. What a joy to be here. I just want to tell you, I love worshiping with this church. Uh, I confessed earlier this, this morning that I might steal your worship team. But I think if you confess it, it's not sin. And, and I would love for them to travel with me. Can you imagine how extraordinary? Well, folks, I don't know about you, but I need the help of the Holy Spirit in order to truly hear what God is saying. Uh, this, this morning, I'm not so interested that you hear what I have to say, but I'm deeply interested that you would catch the divine whisper of the Holy Spirit. So can we go to the Lord and pray and ask for his help just for a moment? Let's go ahead and do that. Father, you are here. You are present. Lord, we sense your presence in the fellowship of believers. We experience your presence in the worship. We experience your presence in your word. Would you come this morning and this afternoon and recapture our hearts back to you? Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts so that we would see and hear and understand? Come and realign us to your will. This is our deepest and largest desire. And Lord, we pray this in the glorious and holy name of Christ alone. Amen and amen. We can go ahead and get that slide up. So last week I started with a series that we're going to conclude hopefully today on an ancient faith for the future of the church or the future church. I don't know about you, but we lived during a very difficult and strange time. I don't know how many of you recognize that. A good friend of mine years ago wrote me a handwritten note that I've kept in the front of my Bible. And in this note, he said the following. He said that our times are changing fast. And he said that now we are no longer dealing with a secular world, but rather a pagan world and a secular church. And the question that we have to ask is what kind of faith will we need to overcome this world? In my mind, I'm deeply interested in the vibrancy, the power of the early church that was able to stand up against this world, against something as evil as the Roman Empire, and overcome it with the power and the truth of the gospel. And so this morning, I'm going to say to you, church, one word from God can change your life. Just one word. Just one word from God. And this morning, for a few moments, I want us to revisit what indeed the shape of the gospel might be. 
Jesus was asked this question. It's a question that we are asking over and over and over again. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that a scribe came to him and asked this question. And he asked the question, what is the most important thing? As a pastor and a scholar, this is a question that I ask all the time. What is this one thing that we need to know? Now Mark tells us that Jesus answered by reciting a prayer. It's not just any prayer. It's a very famous prayer from the book of Deuteronomy. Scholars tell us that this prayer is the summary of the Torah. It's the summary of the first five books of the Bible. This prayer is called the Shema. And what Jews would do in the first century, they would start their day with this prayer, and they would end their day with this prayer. By the way, this word Shema means to hear or to listen. I love that. Think about it for a moment. According to the Scriptures, prayer doesn't start by speaking. Prayer starts by listening, hearing, right? Listening and hearing, Shema. And what is it that you're supposed to hear? And here's the prayer. The prayer says, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. That word one is the Hebrew word echad. That doesn't really mean one. It means united, perfect, complete, matchless. What is it that you're supposed to hear? You're supposed to hear that God is God. And as you understand that he is God, you must love him with all of your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And wherever you go, you must talk about this. Jesus understood that there was a core truth that we need to understand in our faith. The Apostle Paul picks up on this. And in one of the letters that he writes to the church in Ephesus, he he follows up on this idea of the Shema. And he writes the following. He says, church, I want you to know the following. There's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is a core truth that we are supposed to know. Now, last week I told you about some time that I spent in Scotland with one of my great heroes, Tom Wright. And I asked Tom this question. I said, Tom, can you explain to me what is the core truth of the gospel? Now, I I thought I understood it, but it's always good to hear it from someone else. It is something that I'm circling all of my life. And and, and Tom, as a typical academic, uh, gave me three words, and forgive me for this for a moment. But but he said that ultimately, the gospel is about monotheism, election, and eschatology. And I know I've lost you right then. Um, Folks, forgive me for this. (laughs) I will unpack it in a moment. Another way to think of this is that there are three core truths that we must embrace. That the shape of the gospel is ultimately about three great truths. There is one God. He's chosen one people. And he's prepared for us one future. It's glorious, isn't it? One God, one people, one future. Last week, we spent some time talking about that first core truth. What does it mean to recognize that there's one God? And I shared with you two thoughts, two thoughts out of the New Testament. That if there's one God, he is sovereign and he is Lord. 
which means that he can do with us whatever he wants, that he is in charge, and how important that is. Today, however, I want to revisit, and I want to go back and speak about the next two core truths. This truth that there's one people and that God has prepared one future for us. All right. So let's start with that one people idea. And I want to go to something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Romans. Now, folks, let me quickly just address something that will help you here. Many of you will try to take notes. Professors have many problems. Uh, One particular problem, firstly, we love the sound of our own voice. Uh, We speak too much. Uh, my son's best friend visited him a while back. <clears throat> this is what I overheard him say. He, he said this. He said, Cole, do not ask my dad any questions. We will be here the whole day. <laughs> Don't do it. And secondly, I love notes. I'm horrified every time I read the Gospels. And at the end, Jesus ascends to heaven and he leaves no notes for his disciples. <laughs> makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> I say, no, 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 there has to be notes. Uh, so I tend to over-prepare a little bit. Uh, for, forgive me for that. Uh, typically for a sermon, you should never have more than 15 slides, I am told. <clears throat> I typically have like 90, and then I whittle it down to about a manageable number of about 30, and then I try to get a little bit more down. I I just have too many notes. So I've decided I'll make these slides available to any of you that would like it. This belongs to you. I I don't really care what you do with it um, after this. But it's more important that you catch what the Spirit is saying. So when Paul speaks about this truth that God has prepared for us, one people, listen to how he, he puts this in the letter to the Romans. He writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Can I just stop there for a moment? What a difficult phrase that is. That word predestined has caused a lot of trouble in the church. How many of you know? So I'm going to unpack it for you a little bit. There's a much easier way to understand this. So if I could translate it from the Greek, this is what Paul wants to say. Paul wants to say, Before the foundations of the earth, God knew about you. He knew about you. You were in his heart even before he created the heavens and the earth. And guess what? Not only did he know about you, but he gave you a predestiny. That's just what that word means. A predestiny. He's prepared a path for you. Uh, Let me retranslate it again. God knew about you and he had a plan. There it is. He predestined us. And what is that plan? To be conformed, to be changed, to be transformed into the image of his son. So that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And here Paul unpacks what this looks like. And he says for those that he's predestined, that predestiny, that pre-plan, that, that, that glorious destiny that he's prepared for us, he called. And to those that he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And here in Paul's writings, we see three very important truths that he wants to tell us about. What does it mean to be part of God's people? Firstly, he calls us. Secondly, he justifies us. Thirdly, he glorifies us. I'm going to speak about those three great truths just for a moment. And, and this will help us quite a bit. Let's sort of that great truth that he 
has called us. Paul would consistently use this language to describe the nature of our salvation. Second Thessalonians 2.14, he says, To this he called you. What did he call you? Through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I became a Christian at the age of 12. Uh, Actual fact, as I said this morning, that's not entirely true. Uh, I did accept the Lord at the age of 10 and then had about a year and a half of rebellion. Uh, It took me a while to realize I didn't do rebellion well. You know, I look back and I thought, I had more options. (laughs) Nobody told me about all the options of sin uh, that I could engage in, right? So my rebellion wasn't great. (laughs) But then at 12... I accepted the Lord, and I've been serving Him for well over 35 years now, which is not really long in the great scope of things. <clears throat> but I remember for years, I would give my testimony. And this is the way that I would give it. I would say, well, you know, when I was 12, I had the great wisdom to accept Jesus, or I had the wisdom at a young age to accept the Lord. The older I get, the more I realize I had nothing to do with this. He chose me. Before the foundations of the earth. It's a little bit like falling in love. Right. So when I was 25 years old, I was an associate pastor for a large church. Uh, Our church at that point had about 52,000 members. It was a large church. And um, I at one point decided (laughs) that I was not going to get married. 25 years old. And I made the mistake of announcing this in church. On a Sunday morning, right? How stupid can one man be, right? And there it is. Um, I'm preaching that morning. There's about nine and a half, maybe 10,000 folks in attendance at the eight o'clock service, and I'm, I'm the one preaching. And I stood up and I said, Church, I want you to know that I will no longer get married. It's now just me and Jesus. <laughs> Thinking I had any decision, you know, over any of this. That next Monday, I was invited to a dinner, and I sat next to the most beautiful girl from Italy, and we were married four months later. (laughs) And I remember, right, I remember phoning my best friend, and I said, I'm finished. I mean, I just had one look at her, and I realized, I don't really have a choice over this, do I? (laughs) Love has taken a hold of me. I was unable not to pursue her, right? And it takes us a while to recognize that our choice to follow Jesus, yes, it feels like a choice, but in essence, it's our response to his drawing power. You know, Song of Solomon starts this way. Song of Solomon is what we call a prolonged metaphor in the Old Testament, And it's beautiful. It's a metaphor that describes our relationship with God. You know what's the first line there? Draw me and I will run after you. It's the drawing power of Jesus that generates pursuing power in us. And in the same way that the beauty of my wife drew me to her and I could not could not say no to her beauty. I could not not pursue her. I had to pursue her because she was drawing me. In the same way, we need to recognize that, folks, this is our future. 
We don't really have a choice whether we are coming to church on Sunday. We think we have a choice. But God has already chosen us. He's looked at us and he said, you shall be holy. You shall be holy. I love what the following author writes. Uh, Oskin is a good friend of us at, at, at Regent. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but listen to what he writes. He says, Thus, for followers of Christ, calling neutralizes the fundamental position of choice in modern life. He says, I've chosen you, Jesus said. You have not chosen me. We are not our own. We've been bought of a price. We have no rights, only responsibilities. Now, if God has chosen us to be part of this one people, there's a second truth. He justifies us. What does that mean? He cleanses us from all of our sin. Not through anything that we do, but through his own sacrifice. Now, as a pastor, I want to tell you, I often meet people that have secret battles. I call them silent storms. Those storms that nobody is aware of. That battle that nobody knows that you are going through. And so often I see people fight and Go through these battles for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And at some point they give up. And at some point they say, I will have to learn to live with my son. They make peace with sin. And it becomes, in essence, a sophisticated Christian way of living a lie. And, and the reason why we often struggle with it is that we try to change ourselves. Now here's a core truth. We are unable to save ourselves and we are unable to change ourselves. The harder you try to change yourself, the more you will fail. That's the whole point of Christianity, right? Somebody said to me a while back, oh, Christianity is your crutch. Yes, my dear. Not only my crutch, but my bed, my foundation, my absolutely everything. You're right. Of course, I depend upon Christ. And part of the fact that he's called us is that he cleanses us. He purifies us. Not for anything that we've done, but through his own power and his own strength. Not only does he call us, but he justifies us. And, and folks, I'm going to skip a few slides here. He, he also glorifies us. It's an extraordinary idea. Paul writes about God's plan for the church and he says... That in the end, he will bring a church to himself with no spot or wrinkle. A church in splendor. A church in holiness. If I could translate it to you. God's called you. He will cleanse you. And he will make you holy. A while back, I wrote something on Facebook or on Facebook that got me into trouble. It's a weekly problem. And um, I, I've stopped unfriending people now <clears throat> uh, because they do it for me. I don't have to unfriend anybody. They'll unfriend me, which is fantastic and wonderful. And this is what I wrote. I, I thought the statement is true, and I wrote just a simple statement. Sin makes you stupid. That's true. Yes. Sin will not only break your heart, but it will make you stupid. We were not created to sin. Sin is unnatural to us. And sometimes we believe the lie of the enemy. 
not only about our own lives, but other people. The Lord arrested me a while back, so I have a 16-year-old, and I don't know if you know this about 16-year-olds, but they don't watch television any longer. There's a definitive shift that's taking place. And, and, and so he watches YouTube. Now, I want to watch with him because I don't understand why this is entertaining or why it's funny. Right? I'm trying to get into his world. So I'm sitting next to him and we're watching this, but before his particular um, um, videos coming up, there was, a, there was a commercial. And it was a commercial about an American pop star that I have not thought about for probably 10 or 20 years. And I have not seen her active. And, and I remember looking at her, and of course I'm speaking about the pop star Madonna, right? You all know who Madonna is. Well, 15, 20 years ago, I used to think, oh God, let her just live long enough. She will calm down. You know, old age will take care of this, right? And, and, and I figured out she's close to 60. Probably, right. Well, well, church, I watched a commercial of her latest live show that she's recorded as a film. And let me tell you, there's no calming down at all. And I just watched this in shock and in horror. It was as wild as anything I've ever seen in my whole life. She was dancing in ways that nobody should dance in public or private. Never. Right? You should just don't do this. <laughs> and I'm thinking, with all the money that she does not enough, she doesn't have enough money to get some more clothes, you know. <laughs> Dress yourself. Make sure. <laughs> it was wild. Really, really wild. And I say to my son, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Wash your brain. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is not good. And I remember watching her, you know, doing all these really, really, really wrong things. <clears throat> I did not even know one could do these wrong things. Uh, but just watching this, and, and thinking, oh, she's lost. And the Holy Spirit arrested me and he said, I have created her to be holy. God has a plan. So I made a decision uh, a while back, and it's, I think it's been almost uh, 10 months. Every single morning I pray for Madonna. I'm no longer gonna, going to believe the lie of the enemy over this person's life. Then I had another idea. Imagine she becomes a Christian. As my son says, the force is strong with that one. Yes. <laughs> Imagine she becomes a Christian. Do you think she will be afraid of anyone? Oh, I don't think so. I think she will be proclaiming the gospel. And now, would you join me in praying with her? Yes, let's start to pray for this, for, for, for this beloved one of God. She's been created. To be holy. There's a plan that God has for her. And yet we believe the lie of the enemy. But sometimes we do the same with ourselves. I said this morning, I have a family member that has walked away from the Lord. It's very painful. This is somebody that was in ministry. And this person has started to believe the lie of the enemy. And so what I do, I, I phone this person almost weekly. As I phone, as what I say, I will say, you know what, I know, I know where you are and I know what you are doing. But I want to tell you, God is coming to get you. You will be holy. You will be pure. That is God's plan for you. That person puts down the phone uh, in my ear. 
Of course, it doesn't worry me at all because I have other phones, and so I phone that person back again <laughs> and until they've, I've gone through all the possible phone numbers you know, that we've walked through. <clears throat> you shall be holy. He's called us. He will justify us, and he wants to glorify us. Folks, once you realize that, how can you look at another church and, 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 and judge it? Look at another Christian and, and just stop believing what God could do in and through that person. I want to believe God's word. Not only has he called us, but folks, to one church, but he has prepared one future for us. And for a few moments, I want to talk to you a little bit about what does that one future look like? Now, it's, it's a little bit sad to me today that the church has stepped back from speaking about the future. Folks, we have to have a clear and a gospel understanding of God's plan for the end. So for a number of years, I taught in a business school, which is always very interesting, because people would misunderstand who I was, and I would get invited to the wrong conferences to speak. Now, for the most part, I would phone them and I would say, don't get me, I will cause trouble. <clears throat> uh, but this particular one, um, I actually did phone them and I said, I don't think I'm the right person. They said, oh, please come. I'm sure this will be fine. And I was invited to speak at the World Future Society Conference in Minneapolis. Now, the World Future Society, <clears throat> may I just quickly tell you, is a very interesting group of people. These are people that think about the future. But they think of the future in interesting ways, right? So when you go to this conference, there's a little desk that you can go to and you can sign up to have your body frozen or your head frozen when you die so that they can reanimate you. You can also sign up to have your soul downloaded in software once they've developed you know, the software for it. <laughs> it's, it's a group of really strange people. <clears throat> and so uh, the basic premise of this group is that the future is open-ended. You can do with the future whatever you want to do. And so they asked me to give a keynote address on, yes, the wrong person, wrong person, wrong, 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 wrong person. I don't know how I got the invitation. <laughs> and they gave me even the title, The Future According to Jesus. And I realized, okay, so I will come and speak, and I will never be invited back which turned out to be quite true. <laughs> I have a special gift for just giving one address. <laughs> a number of places like that. I, years ago, I spoke uh, in, at, at the Czech Republic, their, their parliament. I was, don't know how that happened either. Got invited to speak, and there were a number of folks there that you would know. And, and I realized very quickly, mm, I will never come back here. <laughs> That's a good thing. Anyway, so I thought, what do I say? So... I constructed quite an academic <clears throat> lecture, but in essence, to say just two things. At the end of time stands Christ. And each of you will have to give a reckoning. You will be judged. Folks, there was a collective groaning in the audience, which as a pastor energizes me. <clears throat> Doesn't make me upset at all. <laughs> the more the groanings, the better it is, right? I go right in and I think, oh, this is good. We, we are hitting some nerves, right? 
we're hitting the target. This is very, very, very good. It's very, very funny. Um, in the end. But folks, what do we know about the end? The Apostle Paul says that there are three things that God wants to do in the end. And I'm going to very quickly go through this. He writes to the church in Thessalonica. And he says, I'm writing this to you. That God will come, that Christ will come to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. That he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And when you look very closely, the Apostle Paul says three very important things here. He says that at the end, Christ will appear to do three things. He is coming to comfort us. Secondly, he is coming to judge the world. And then thirdly, he is coming so that he might be glorified. Folks, if we understand this core truth about our future, everything changes. Let me start with this first great truth. This truth that Christ will come to comfort us. Now, the young man that led me to the Lord lied to me. I found him on Facebook. Uh, Many years later. And so I wrote him and I said, I know you don't remember me. But in this particular year, in the early 80s, you led me to the Lord and you lied. And I stopped the sentence there. Within two minutes, he wrote back. He said, I don't remember you, but what did I say? What did I say? How did I lie? This is what he said to me. He said, the moment that you accept Jesus, you will not have another problem. No, folks, accepting Jesus brings a host of problems. I'm one of those people that do not believe, I do not believe that it's easier to follow Jesus than not to. I think it's more difficult. And I'll tell you why it's more difficult. Because when you are in Christ, you have to confront truth. As a non-Christian, you can live in la-la land for the rest of your life. You can live in a state of delusion. You don't have to face the truth. God loves us so much that he will not leave you the same. God is more interested in your transformation than your comfort. He will confront us with the truth. Which means very often to follow Jesus involves some form of pain. Right? Some form of suffering. But the glorious truth is that, folks, no matter what we go through living in a fallen world, there's comfort at the end. And listen to what Paul once again writes. He says, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, speaking about the consummation. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What do we know about the end? There's comfort. There's comfort. The second core truth is a truth that even though we live in a world that is often so unrighteous, church, that that unrighteousness will not stand. We are the first generation of any human beings that know what's going on throughout the world. And sometimes I watch the civil war that's taking place in the country of Syria. And I'm horrified. 
Some scholars say that more than a million people now have been slaughtered over the period of five years. And I look at this and I say, will nobody do anything? Why can we allow this to continue on? And and then I look at the evil dictators around the world and and you ask the question, you say, God, how long, how long, how long will you allow this to continue? But one of the core truths that we as Christians stand on is that evil will not continue. God does not allow evil to continue. I I don't know how to say it politely, so I'm just going to say it. Nobody gets away with anything. That's the gospel truth. Christ himself will return to give us comfort and to judge. We often don't read this, but listen to what Paul writes about the end. Paul says that at the end, one figure will appear that will embody, that will embody all the evil against Christ. But he says, and then the lawless one, he calls him the lawless one, will be revealed. And listen to what he says. He says, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Now that's a side of Christ we've not seen yet. That him simply breathing, the evil will be destroyed. And so folks, as Christians, we can stand up straight and say, yes, there's evil in this world. Yes, there's corruption in this world. But it will not stand. There's an end coming where he will comfort us and he will destroy all that is indeed evil. And folks, the last truth here for today is that at the end, (laughs) he will glorify himself in us. We have to always remember, always remember that God has a plan for his church. And that church, that plan is for this church to be glorious and holy without spot, without wrinkle. And the Apostle Paul writes once again in his first letter to the Thessalonians, and he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he will be glorified in and through us. So folks, as I conclude this afternoon, what should the shape of the gospel look like at minimum for us to have the same vibrancy of faith that the early church had. At minimum, I'm going to propose that we need to have three core truths that are established within our hearts and within our lives. There's one God. He is sovereign. He is Lord and he is in charge. He has chosen one people whom he will justify and glorify and There's one end, one future. And in that future, we shall be comforted. We, the church, shall be with him forever and ever in peace and joy and in love. All evil shall be destroyed and he shall be glorified in the end. One faith, one hope, one baptism. And folks, once we understand this truth, this is the gospel that overcomes this world. This is the gospel that will transform our world. So this afternoon, I will conclude with one of the most beautiful prayers. It's one of my favorite prayers in the whole wide world. And forgive me for this. It comes from the medieval times, obviously. 
Uh, my son was asked also the other day, what does your dad do for a living? He's very mischievous. As I said this morning, he gets it from his mother. And um, <clears throat> I'm very brave there in Italy, so please don't tell them. And um, this is what he said. He says, my, my dad studies dead people. Uh, for a living. And I always have to say, no, Jonathan, not dead, alive in Christ. And some ways more alive. I want to share with you a beautiful prayer that was written 800 years ago by a man called Francis of Assisi. You might know another prayer that he wrote, or at least the people say he's written. The prayer that says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. You're familiar with that? Unfortunately, he did not write that. It was written in 1918 by someone else. But let me read you the prayer that he actually wrote. This is the faith that I would like to have. Let's see if we can go one more. All right. Uh, for some reason, it's stuck. There we go. Thank you. It reads, You are holy, Lord. The only God. This for me embodies what I wanted to say this morning. Your deeds are wonderful. You are strong. You are great. You are the most high. You are almighty. You, Holy Father, are king of heaven and on earth. You are three and one. Lord God, all good. You are good. All good. Supreme good. Lord God, living and true. Then he continues on. You are love. You are wisdom. You are humility. You are endurance. You are rest. You are peace. You are joy and gladness. You are justice and moderation. You are all our riches and you suffice for us. You are beauty, you are gentleness, you are our protector. You are our guardian and defender. You are our courage. You are our haven and our hope. You are our faith, our great consolation. You are our eternal life, great and wonderful Lord, God Almighty, merciful Savior. Let us pray. Father, this afternoon, would you come and rip from us any misunderstanding of your gospel? And Lord, would you plant firmly within our hearts once again the unity of faith. One Lord, one faith, one body, one baptism, one God, one church, one future. And Lord, in planting it within our lives, may your gospel go forth and change this world. You are our hope, our love, our humility, our defender, our courage, our beauty our rest eternal. We pray this in the name of Christ alone. Amen and amen. Pass it on. Thank you, Dr. Becker. What a fantastic mini-series. Would you all stand with me for a minute? Prayer teens, if you want to make your way up front, that would be fantastic at this time. I just want to speak a blessing over you today as you, as you leave and you go and have a great week. But if God stirred something in your heart today, if something's there, I want to encourage you not to leave today until you come up and you have some prayer. These teams are up here to stand with you, to pray with you, and it's one of the biggest, biggest things you can do after a moment of God touching your heart. Don't rush off today. Let God continue to minister to you. So let me bless you and release you today. God, I bless this congregation today, God. Each person that's here, every grandpa, every grandma, every mom, every dad, every sister, every brother, God, as they stand this morning, God, as a family here, I pray, God, that you would bless them as they go forth and say yes to you. You would bless them as they choose to believe that you're going to continue to move in their life and in their lives of everyone that they come in contact to. 
Lord, I speak a blessing of awareness of your presence over their life today and during this week. Lord, I thank you for my church family. I thank you for each and every one in this room and those that can't be with us today. God, we choose to speak blessing over each other. We choose to be that one family. We thank you for that, God, that one people called by you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Have a great week, everybody.